0: Amen, amen. And Mitch, would you care to bring my mic down a little bit? It sounds really hot up here, so. Uh, Real quick, the book of Deuteronomy. Does anybody know what the word Deuteronomy means? It's not, dude, you're on to me, okay? (laughs) That's that's not what this is. It's Deuteronomy, so. Anybody know what it means? I actually said it whenever we talked about the names in Genesis chapter 5, so. Something about the law, how do we know that? Anybody know? In fact, the the word Deuteronomy springs from uh, the Greek language, actually what it's called in the Septuagint. If you've got Deuteronomy open, uh, and you notice at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. That's actually in the Hebrew Bible. That's the name of this book. Uh, They were all listed by the first line that told you about that. Uh, that's the name but do we know anybody know what deutero means second and then namas law second law this is the second giving of the law which is interesting and this is also known as the layman's version of the law now we're going to get a little bit into deuteronomy not beginning chapter 1 verse 1 necessarily but we're going to mark some things so does anybody need a pen important stuff good deal there we go just make, see, you got to have a pen for this, too. I know. You're like, I got done with church. I went and threw my pen away. Everybody else good? Good. Here we go. Good catch. Good catch. Yeah, I went to the... See? I know where to place it. There you go. So here's some things. Number one, before you even begin to look at any of this stuff, what are some reasons why you would study the Old Testament? And here's a reason why. We always talk about... Uh, we always hear Christians say something like, "Well, we're a New Testament church." Well, our church is founded upon the body and the blood of Christ. Our our church is founded upon the cross and those types of things. None of those things are bad. Understand that. None of that stuff is bad, but it is in the grand scope of what the Bible talks about, slightly short-sighted. That's important. So, what? what why? Why would you study the Old Testament? I mean, think about it. Can you really relate to the culture where you're at now? Well, that's difficult. Do, are we all history buffs and we know all about the ancient Near East? No. Anything that happened before the flood, we're kind of scratching our heads anyway because only eight people made it out of that, right? Well, the only thing we can understand about that is that the gene pool went through a filter at some point and then blossomed back out into what the world is. So, why would you study the Old Testament? Do you guys have handouts? Everybody got handouts? Okay, everybody got handouts. Good. Why? Why would you do it? What do you think, man? Say it slowly. To understand God's standard of righteousness that makes salvation necessary. Absolutely. Everybody familiar with New Tribes Missions? Okay. They have a school over in Waukesha. They've actually changed their name to Ethnos 360 is what they've changed it to because New Tribe Missions started to create a lot of problems for them getting into third world countries to minister. Uh, But when they changed their name, they've had the same philosophy since 1980. They, they go to school, get all trained up in phonics and linguistics. They get dropped into uh, a remote area uh, after they've gone through all of their studies to where they've committed 20 to 25 years of their life that they are going to stay there, learn the culture, learn the language, learn the history, learn the people. And then they begin teaching them chronologically, much like what we're doing on Sunday, from Genesis to the ascension of Christ so that they have this entire foundation and they're able to put Jesus where he needs to be above all things. And here's the reason why. You have a culture that believes, well, this is God and this is God. and This this is the sun God. This is the moon God. This is the stars God. This is whoever. And all of a sudden you find that when Jesus is brought up, he just gets filed into one of many other gods that they hold dear. Well, that's very dangerous because he's not. He is the God and there is no other God but him. Everybody see how that could get real messy real quick? So what you have to do is is you have to come in with Genesis establishing who Yahweh is as the creator and destroy everything else and start rebuilding it brand new so that there's a frame of reference. Everybody got that? Okay, so good. So learning about his righteousness is standard so that we understand salvation. That's exactly correct. What else? Why else would you study the Old Testament? So we get our doctrine right. Jerry, explain that. Yes. How does the New Testament start? It starts with the Old Testament. Yes, but I mean, think about it. We, we very first book, in the New Testament, is Matthew. How does Matthew start? A genealogy, and because we're all God-loving people, we skip over that part and we go into chapter one, verse nineteen, or whatever it is after that, right? Because oh, genealogy, he begot, he begot. What is Matthew trying to do? Matthew's Matthew's book, his gospel, is very Jewish. And so he's trying to establish something critical in that. And notice that even Matthew, when he begins, starts with, if you want to know where Jesus came from, let's just follow his line. Here he is. And notice it has to go through two pivotal points, Abraham and David. He's not only part of the promise, but he's also part of the royalty. Everybody see that? Very interesting. And he does that intentionally. Why? Because when he brings Jesus on the scene, there's got to be some credibility. You have to have a frame of reference. So yes, very good. It has to do to get our doctor straight. Anybody else think of reasons why we study the Old Testament? How many people... Okay, go ahead, Mary. You just need to know who God is, his attributes. It's really hard to talk about the God-man if you don't have a correct understanding of at least the first part of that, God. If our thinking about God is messed up and our thinking about man is messed up and we understand that the problem is sin, then the God-man who came to take care of sin makes no no sense to us. Everybody see that? It gets diluted real quick. And understand, Satan loves working in half-truths. He loves it. Because half-truths are really total lies. See, we even say it, half-truths, because that's a positive way to say it. It's really a total lie is what it is. It's very important for us to understand. Let's do this real quick. How many people have, have read, or, or not read, studied the Old Testament in some form, fashion, book or something, anytime time in the past year? Okay, three, four. Excellent. This is going to be beautiful. Great. Let's do this. If you notice, why study the Old Testament? Let's take our Bibles, and let's turn to the New Testament for that answer. <laughs> How funny is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And just so you guys know, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited about this. I love the book of Deuteronomy. I'm really jazzed about it. And I want us to see two in particular verses. But as with anything, don't ever just take a verse, pluck it out, and ha-ha, this is what I'm going to use. That's called proof texting. It doesn't work. Every verse has a context around it. And you will find that context is so crucial, except when you get into some parts of Proverbs, then you have kind of one-off statements. But any, any other book, very, very important. So chapter 10, let's just start in verse 1. Let's just read, and then we'll highlight the two verses that are very important here, okay? For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now pause. Does everybody from what you know about Old Testament see the allusions back to the Old Testament? Well, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> when we talk about under the cloud everybody remember that god led them as a cloud everybody remember that a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day everybody see passed through the sea what sea is that red sea so notice we're familiar with this we got some sort of grounding and traction with it how about this uh all ate the same spiritual food could have been manna yeah and all drank the same spiritual drink where was that <laughs> milk Because you got your mind on your money and your money on your mind. That's the reason why. Snoop Dogg reference. Anyway, moving on. What's that? Water from the rock. In fact, wasn't that where Moses got in trouble? God said the second time, go and speak to the rock. And, you can, and we'll read it later. We'll see it because it's going to interplay with Deuteronomy. And man, he was upset. You rebels. You can almost see him like gritting his teeth in it. And what's he do? He strikes the rock when God told him to speak to the rock. And because of that one instance right there, that one act of disobedience, Moses became one of the unfaithful who didn't inherit the promised land. Got to stand up on the mountain and look over and see it. We know later on when we deal with the Mount of Transfiguration that it's Elijah and Moses that are talking to Jesus, so he's over there in a spiritual sense, but he never got to physically lead the children into Israel. In fact, one thing that you notice, it's very interesting, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, there was nothing wrong with Moses' body. He was 120 years old. It says his eyesight wasn't failing. He was in perfect sorry, health. You know what happened? God was done with him. You have served everything you can possibly serve. He could have served longer, but because he disobeyed, because he operated, he let his emotions get the best of him, and he operated in unbelief. He struck that rock instead of speaking to that rock, and he forfeited his opportunity to inherit the land. Very interesting. We're going to talk about the parallels with that in salvation. So anyway, we get that, the spiritual rock. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not what? Well pleased. They partook of all of these divine interactions, but with most of them, overwhelmingly, God was not pleased. Look what it says. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now here it is. Now these things happen as... Examples, types for us, patterns for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Number one reason why we would want to study the Old Testament, so that we would not crave evil things. You ever thought about that? If I study the Old Testament, it will help squelch my craving for evil. That's exactly what the text says. We see the examples that went on in their life. That's what we find. So write it in there under number one, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved them. They are examples. They are patterns. They are types for us. Now, that does not mean that the church is Israel and Israel is the church. Two separate entities. Israel is a nation of people. The church is a transnational community in Christ to totally different things and to confuse those messes up the whole bible it's very important to understand so notice that we would not crave evil is the first reason why we should study the old testament verse 7 do not be idolaters as some of them were as it was written the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23000 fell in one day if you have never read this account in scripture you need to. This account here, where 23,000 fell in one day, man, it's a sobering lesson. Um, Let's see here, Uh, dealing completely with sexual immorality. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were, were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyed. Does everybody see how Paul tells us they were examples, they were types for us, and then he starts going, remember this time, remember this time, remember this time, what's it teaching you? Not to act immorally, not to be an idolater. not to try the Lord, not to grumble and complain. Everybody see how those basic lessons can be fleshed out in the lives of these people. The Bible paints people warts and all, and the reason is is to teach us a very sound and solid lesson. In fact, the very definition of wisdom is to see where somebody else messed it up and not do that. That is a definition of wisdom. Oh, this is what happened when that person tried that? I need to do this and go over this way. Not making the same mistakes that other people have made. Avoiding those consequences. Moving on here. He says, verse 11, here's the second reason why we should study the Old Testament. Now these things happen to them as an example derived from the same Greek word. And they were written, here's the reason why, for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. We just talked about the heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, right? For the return of Christ. We're in the end. Hebrews chapter 1 talks about in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Now the last days have been 2,000 years. But it doesn't change the fact that we are in the last days and to live in anticipation why should we study the old testament because it instructs us in an age when we desperately need wisdom these aren't just cute little sunday school stories i don't know any sunday school curriculum that's based around deuteronomy for fifth graders but still maybe we could look into that how interesting would that be right probably see a attendance decline i don't know but anyway it's for our instruction so everybody write that down upon whom The ends of the age have come because the timing is crucial. That's the reason why. After you get that written down, let's turn over to Romans 15.4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Why do we study the Old Testament? And of course, we want to start with some context, so we're going to deal in verse 1. Romans 15, starting in verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Four. here's an explanation, verse 4, and this is what I want you to pay close attention to. Whatever was written in earlier times, there's your Old Testament, right? Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. There it is again, our instruction. So that, here's the reason, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, what? Hope. It is to instruct us, but in a means to where we would persevere in hard times and we would be encouraged by what others have gone through for God's sake. Why? So that we would have hope. Now pause for a second. If you deal with somebody who subscribes to lordship salvation, they will essentially say, well, see, here it is. If you don't heed the instructions of the Old Testament, you don't persevere and you don't have encouragement from what the Old Testament is offering, you have no hope and therefore you prove yourself not to really be saved. That is a corruption of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by what Jesus does, not by what I do. That is so important. So what does it mean for the Christian paying attention to the Old Testament, receiving instruction, and that instruction, notice that instruction isn't to fill your head, but to motivate your heart. Does everybody see that? So that you would have encouragement, so that you would persevere, and that you would have hope. What is the hope they're talking about here? I mean, you're hoping you'll go to heaven? I hope this happens. Is that what the Bible means by the word hope? Like like it it's kind of iffy, whichever way the teeter-totter falls, is that kind of what it is? No, not at all. The idea of hope here is the idea of the Christian having a good standing before the judgment seat of Christ. If you heed the lessons of the Old Testament, if you embrace the principles of people who were faithful to God, You persevere in hard times, and you are encouraged to move forward, continue on in obedience. You will have a solid standing when the Lord Jesus evaluates our lives, how we stewarded our Christian lives on earth. Now, pause there. Are there any questions? See, I love this small group kind of format because people feel a little bit more up to asking questions. Are there any questions about that concept so that we understand it? It's very important. I can't even. I can't. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, my, my toes do this in my shoes because I'm so excited about getting to the judgment seat of Christ. But there's so much we have to do before we get there. Yes, yes, yes. There are people that. Yes, you bring up an incredible point. It can't be overstated enough. Uh, tons of churches are on the Lordship boat. All of them virtually. In fact, you talk to people and people are so concerned with how you act, choices that you've made, even even expectations that they have of you that, that they don't even keep themselves but they expect you to do it and they use that to qualify and to judge whether or not you're saved. It would be good to take a, take a, a, a point from the Apostle Paul and he says I do not even judge myself in these matters. He's not even about judging the eternity of people. If you ever want a, a good recognizing point of that uh, 1 Corinthians was the most carnal church going on that we have in the Bible Paul never once questions whether or not they're truly saved people because salvation is all about what Jesus Christ has done not about what we do we are not going to be faithful all the time we're going to fall, we're going to skin our knees there's some days that we're just going to throw off our clothes and jump in the lake and not care what happens some days that we just get all kinds of carnal and sinful mowing my yard, right? I mean, seriously, I mean, there's some things you're just like, oh, I know when I do this, you know, sin is crouching at the door. Yes, it is. And it's wrestling me to the ground kind of thing. And we just get all messed up. Understand this. You cannot out the grace of God. You will never out the grace of God. And it's never about what's going on presently in your life, whether or not you're saved. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, he promises you what? Eternal life. Here's the question how long is eternal life forever what's that mean exactly see and you'd be surprised how many people miss this some of your most popular preachers are lordship people everybody's heard of john macarthur lordship in fact he is he is the crux and crucible of lordship salvation don't ever read anything he has written ever because you will walk away closing that book going, oh my gosh, I'm not really saved because I'm not doing enough. I guarantee you, he doesn't do enough to be saved according to his standards. It's incredible. Yes, sir. Yes. Is John MacArthur saved? I cannot judge that. I do not even judge myself, right? Well, here's an interesting thing. Man, this is going to get us way off topic. But here, let's have this discussion because this is important for us to have this discussion. John MacArthur took his church, Grace Community Church, in California in 1969. He got his doctorate in Greek from seminary, Talbot Seminary is where he's from. And actually, one of his professors, Robert Thomas, came on later at Master Seminary where uh, MacArthur is the president and chancellor. He just passed away this past week on Wednesday. Uh, Man, Robert Thomas writes some really good stuff about how to interpret the Bible. I love it. Uh, But anyway, he, from 1969 until 1979, preached a free grace gospel had no problem with it but something happened because he's in california why do i have all these christians that say that they're saved but everything i'm hearing about their social life their marital interactions their time and how they use their finances their relationships with their kids what they do in their spare time nothing equals what should look like a progressively sanctified life why is it that they're not growing in christ and so what he did was he requested from the elders of his church that he take a sabbatical and he was allowed to take about i think it was about six six months to a year off and the entire sabbatical that he took he read two things the gospels and the puritans now how many people have ever read the puritans i know hardly any i think myself and pastor steve i know hardly any puritans that had any confidence that they were really going to heaven they were so freaked out that they hadn't done enough good works that they weren't going to go and so there was no evidence of their salvation that they were all losing their minds in fact there's this one guy i think his name was william perkins uh gosh this is so nerdy um A guy named R.T. Kendall, who was a pastor over at Westminster in London, uh, took over for D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on Calvinism and English Calvinism from 1549, 1849, something like that. It's It's a real, man, it's a nerdy book. It really is. But one of the things that he documented through there was the fact that there were many Puritans who were on their deathbeds. Who had preached for 50 years and were scared to death in their last moments they weren't going to go to heaven because they just did not, they weren't convinced in their minds they had enough good works to be accepted before God. Now that raises two questions. Number one, were they really saved? I don't know if that's what they believed. But number two, what does that say about the work of Christ? The work of Jesus must not have been complete to save them because they constantly had to do something to stay saved. That's a scary place to be. And here's the thing. How many people set under there teaching ministries that were all messed up from that? It sounds like everybody that I deal with every week, right? Not here. I'm talking about like in the mainstream. MacArthur, Sproul, Piper, David Platt, Francis Chan, all of these people. All these people have the most contradictory backwards theology. The Bible is not full of contradictions. It's meant to be understood, and it is seamless if you just take it for what it says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. So, is MacArthur saved? I would say I believe that he is. Why? Because early on, that's what he believed. But when he came back from his sabbatical, he spent 11 years teaching the Gospel of Matthew. And when he got to the Sermon on the Mount... He told his congregation, this is the greatest gospel sermon that's ever been preached. Nothing about the blood of Jesus, nothing about the death of Jesus, nothing about the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount at all. And yet it's the greatest gospel message ever. Why? Because it's about works, 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 works. And what was his whole thing? If you're really saved, I'll see it. That's lordship salvation. If you're really saved, you'll prove it scary throws grace out the window throws everything about the completed work of christ out the window and what it does it says that in your flesh you should do better jesus says john 663 the flesh profits nothing anybody ever read the end of romans 7 the things i want to do i'm not doing and the things i don't want to do i'm in the midst of does anybody recognize the conclusion that he comes to at the end let's do this let's turn there real quick I want you to see this. In fact, we're already in Romans. See how it works out? Praise God. And I've never heard anybody preach on this, and here's the reason why, is because I think that if we believe what it says, I think preachers would be scared they would be fired if they preached on this. Okay? I'm serious. I'm serious. It's very interesting. So let's start in verse... um, Let's see here. Gosh, this is a big argument. We're going to have to start the introduction to Deuteronomy next week, okay? But here we go. (laughs) verse 14 For we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin stop is the law spiritual chapter 14 for we know that the law is spiritual is the law spiritual the law is spiritual the law's good the law is perfect the law is awesome How many of us have had like a sour taste in our mouths about the law? You know, the guy that's on your hydrogen peroxide bottles with the green, that guy? How many of us have had that kind of reaction about the law? Be honest. It's okay. I, I have previously. Okay, we have. It's okay. Oh, I'm not reading the law. It's so crazy. And what's going on there? The law is great. The law is perfect. It is the written perfection of God. It is spiritual to the hilt. But notice what Paul says. But I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Is the flesh sinful? See, we verify that real quickly. The law is spiritual. The flesh is sinful. Everybody keep that straight. Watch where we go. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Now, we've all been there, right? And that's not just you're in the middle of Walmart and can't remember why you went there, right? Okay, that's like daily life, okay? So notice, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do but I'm doing the very thing I hate. I'm sinning and I don't want to and I keep sinning. You know what's amazing with this? I seriously doubt that so much of it had to be from here with Paul and from here with Paul is as much as it was with here with Paul. Anybody ever have sinful carnal problems with your mind and you almost freak yourself out? I can't believe I thought that. I wanted to hit that person with my car for cutting me off. I can't believe I thought that. (laughs) Some, some, and we're you can admit it. Sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we think things, and we scare ourselves about how sinful we could possibly be. It's it's scary stuff. It really is. So notice, uh, which again, aren't you thankful for the Lord Jesus? Uh, but notice what he says here. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate, verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Why? Because the law exposes your sin. Imagine that I'm up here and I'm strumming an acoustic guitar, okay? You can hear it somewhat, and I'm not going to sing because that would be awful. But I'm strumming it, you can hear it. But the law is like bringing in a massive stack of, of speakers, and me pulling up an electric guitar and turning it to 11 and hitting a chord. Anybody get the 11 joke? Anybody? Spinal tap? Okay, awesome, good. So that's what the law does. The law amplifies your sin. Now pause. Does that mean that the law's bad? No, the law's good. In fact, the law is so good, it's telling you what's bad because you're not doing what the law says. Everybody see how that works? So we look at the law and we go... Oh, not today, right? Not any day, not any hour, not any minute. So it says here, verse 17, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Pause for a second. Paul just told you something that rarely any Christian ever understands in their thinking. When he sins, it's no longer who he truly is sinning. You ever thought about that? When you sin, it's not who you truly are that is sinning. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new life in Christ. You have been called out of that mess into the adoption of sons. You have been called out of darkness into light. That's who you really are. Your reality, your identity is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you sin, it is different from who you really are. Do you see what I'm saying? So what is sinning? It's the sin that's within you. Where? In this, in your flesh. Your flesh is sinning. You can't get it away. Somebody described, I think I've used this example here before. Somebody described living the Christian life like this. Imagine you're trying to walk to get somewhere, and you have a dead carcass, a cadaver, hanging over you like this, and you're trudging along with it on your back. That's how it is living the Christian life. Why? Because the sin always wants to weigh you down. Let us cast off the sin that so easily entangles us. From Hebrews, everybody remember that? Why is that? Because the flesh constantly wants to drag us down, revert us back to our old ways. It's like we're all recovering drug addicts. Why? Because we're familiar with sin. Sin's comfortable. We know how it's going to work out. We know what the consequences are. We've done that before. We've been there before. We've thought like that before. And we spent so much time there. See, it's not so weird that the children of Israel said, why can't we just go back to Egypt? We're comfortable there. You see what I'm saying? There's so many parallels, it's incredible. So it says here, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Stop. I love that Paul cares about our self-esteem. Nothing good dwells in you. Nothing good dwells in me. Next week, I want everybody in this group right here to get at the door and let's just form a big line welcoming people, and when they come up and go, welcome to Grace Bible Church, nothing good dwells in you. (laughs) Just bring them right in. They'll be like, what? We're all about the truth here, right? And that's what Paul says. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my what? Flesh. For the willing is present in me. Paul wants to do righteous things. He wants to be obedient, but look what it says. But the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. Everybody agree? Everybody see yourself in this? Okay, Chris. Yes, you did. We're not there yet. It's okay. Okay. Yes, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. But here's the thing. Because Christ fulfilled the law, doesn't mean that the law's power to identify sin stopped. The law still says this is a sin. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, we know the law is good if you use it lawfully. And how do you use it lawfully? It is the standard of God that exposes sin. It lays it bare for everyone to see. Why? Because it is a divine pronouncement of what is righteous. Everything else pales in comparison. Everybody see that? Okay, great. So let's move on here. Uh, Verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. Does everybody see verse 20 and verse 17 match up? It's not really me sinning. It's not the real me of who I am sinning. It is the sinful flesh that hangs on me and dwells in me that is messing me up. Do you realize how many problems in our daily life could be cured if we could just step back like Paul and realize this isn't really me. What I'm doing right here, I don't want to do. This is the flesh rising up and trying to take hold and strangle me out. Everybody see that? Man, this is liberating stuff to me. So in verse 21, I find then... The principle that evil is present in me, and you, and me. Evil is present in us. In the flesh, we're going to sin. But notice what it says here. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law, and stop. When he starts using the word law here, it doesn't mean the law of Moses all the time. I see a different law In the members of my body. That doesn't mean I see something other than Moses' law in my body. What it means is I see another truth. This is true. There's something else going on that because it's part of Paul's experience, he can't deny that it's happening. It is a truth. So notice what he says here. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now stop. If you understand this verse All the rest of it will click into place with you. So let's spend a little bit of time on it. Can I keep you five minutes? We started five minutes late, so awesome. So so notice what it says here. I see a different truth, a different law, verse 23, in the members of my body. Now remember, that's the flesh. And notice what it says. My flesh is waging war against the law of my mind. Now stop. Paul just made a distinction there to help you interpret what he's saying. What's going on in his mind? Everybody remember? It's the stuff that he wants to do. Remember that? He wants to serve God. He wants to do right. He wants to be righteous. He doesn't want to say those words anymore. He wants to witness to that person. That's the stuff that he needs to do. What's keeping him from doing it? Flesh. So notice, I've got a truth going on. The truth is, verse 23, it's in the members of my body. It wages war against my mind, the things I want to do, the truth of my mind. And notice what it does. It makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, of the truth of sin, which is in my members. The flesh wars against your mind. Anybody, can you identify with this? Please tell me as a Christian that you can. yes, yes. We think these crazy things and we're like, good grief, where is that from? That's not from Jesus. I must not be saved. Maybe I need to walk the aisle. Maybe I need to pray a prayer. Maybe I need to do communion right now. And we freak out. Paul's saying don't freak out. Know where it comes from. Your flesh sins. That's just what it does. Your knowledge of Scripture, this is why we're called on to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is to fill us up so that we are motivated to do these good things and that flesh will war against you every time every time it's a struggle it's a battle yes sir yeah but he did and here's amazing thing when romans was written paul had probably been a christian for about 30 years No, no. So many people say that. I, I, one girl that I discipled for years came back from, from uh, Bible college. And we were talking about Romans 7. She goes, well, that was just when Paul wasn't saved. I was like, so all of a sudden he's perfectly obedient when he's not saved? Why in the world would his mind want to obey righteousness if he doesn't know Jesus? That makes no sense. And I slapped her around a little bit. She's fine now. But, you know, you got to tell people the word, Right. But no, it's not talking about it at all. So if Paul is struggling with sinful things 30 years into his Christian experience, don't be so hard on yourself. Is sin serious business? Yeah. Should we deal with it seriously? Yeah. But do we need to get depressed and get in a corner and in the fetal position and suck on your thumb for six hours? No. When I've, What's that? We have, hope. We have the hope. When I first became a Christian and I would sin, it would put me out of commission for three, four weeks. I didn't want to come out of my apartment. I didn't want to see anybody. I went to work, came home. All the lights are off. That's all I did. What did I realize? I'm not living according to the truth. And I'm not thinking of myself how God has told me to think about myself. See, I just don't need the word in order to learn how to think about him. I need the word to learn how to think about me. Because if anything is most deceiving in my life, it's not the devil I'm worried about. It's me. I'm my own worst enemy. So notice this moving on here. Verse 24. Here's his conclusion. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Who's going to set him free from the body of death? Jesus is. Notice, set him free from the body of death. The body of sin. Now pay attention because here's the verse nobody wants to preach on. Here it is. And we're going to do it right now, so don't fire me. verse twenty five thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're all about that, right? Thank you, God through Christ. Thank you for what he's done for me. Thank you that he set me free, but look what he says. So then, on the one hand, I my uh, was on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Now pause for a second. What's the mind have to do with right thinking, right? I want to do these good things. Everybody remember what we saw up there? These are the things I want to do that that my flesh is keeping me from doing. So here's the thing. On the one hand, in my Christian life, my mind is going to serve in obedience to the Lord. That's what's going to happen. I want to serve him. I want to glorify him. He's the only one worthy of praise. All of his ways are right. I need to embrace this in my life. Yes, my mind is set on those things. Excellent. Comma. Look what he says. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, when it says, on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin, what is the verb? What's the verb? Back up in that verse and look. huh? Serving. So here's what it actually says. With my mind, I am serving the law of God. But with my flesh, I am serving the law of sin. Does everybody get what Paul's saying? Your flesh is going to sin. That's what your flesh does. Your flesh can't do anything else but sin. Your flesh will never get better. Your flesh will never progressively not be in a sinning state. That's all your flesh does is sin. So how do you deal with the flesh? Convinced in your mind that truth is greater than the acts of the flesh. It's got to be God's work through us, not us trying harder, not doing better. That's called bootstrap theology. It gets everyone nowhere. And this is why we have no right to ever judge somebody's salvation based on what they've done or haven't done in their life, where they are in life or where they not are in their life. That is not grace That is not the unconditional acceptance that Jesus Christ offers because he died to secure it, not you and I and our faulty expectations. Our expectations are a sinful list of the flesh on other people. That is important to understand. And that's what makes us all legalists. Why? Well, because I'm doing these things, but they're not. So therefore, I must be more saved. Well, God must love me more. Well, at least I'm not doing those things. Everybody remember that guy, the Pharisee? God, I thank you so much I'm not like this guy. He's terrible. He's dirt. He's trash. Look at me. I do this for you. I do this for you. I do this for you. That's why you should love me, God, because I'm so great. What did the guy on his knees do? Forgive me, God. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. I recognize my sin, and I recognize my flesh's unhelpful need of constantly wanting to satisfy itself. And I know that's terrible grammar, but I don't know how to explain it. I'm constantly have this insatiable desire to want to scratch my flesh and appease my flesh and feed me and build me up and look at me and all this stuff. And God, I'm so helpless before you because of that. Only you can do a work for your glory through me. The only get this: the only person that can please God is God, because God is perfect, and the only thing that will please God is perfection. So unless we are intaking the Word. And praying for the Holy Spirit to enact these things through us from what we have learned from the Word, we will never live obedient lives. And Paul understands this. What's my sin going to do? Or my flesh going to do? It's going to sin. And I'm going to continue to serve that the rest of my life. It's constantly going to be a weight. So, any questions about that? Okay. Aren't you glad that God is gracious? Man, He's so good! He's so good! And the reason why we know how good he is is because we know how bad we are. Man, that's great. So I told you all you need to know, now you're out. Is that what happened? Oh, okay. Thanks for asking my question. See you later. (laughs) Just kidding. Next week, hold on to these. Next week, we will plunge into the introduction of Deuteronomy and look through those things. Colleen, yes, ma'am? Number three. Sorry, number three was chapter 15, verse four. It's for our instruction that we would persevere and be encouraged so that we would have hope, is the idea. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have more of these up here, and I'll have them next time, so thank you guys for letting me keep you and being patient, and thank you. I love questions. I love them, okay? So if right now is a good question time, that'd be great. I'll tell you what, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time to talk about your goodness and our constantly helplessness. Uh, state that we are in lord uh, even being saved father we still want to do wrong uh, lord uh, our savior is so much greater than our sin your grace is so much greater than our sin your love and your compassion is so much greater uh, than those things that war in us to make us want to do wrong thank you god that you are merciful thank you god that you are beautiful you're so good to us lord you're so good. And I pray, God, that that just sets in us with such comfort, knowing that we are your children. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Let us praise you. Let's worship you. Bring these truths to our mind and serve as fuel to, that our lips would sing of your goodness and your glory, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This was fun. Thank you, guys.